Hello, folks. Dr. Maurice Selby here, medical director, producer, and co-host of Health in Harlem on WHCR 90.3 FM and the Health in Harlem podcast. While we strive to bring you the most up-to-date, reliable, evidence-based information to help you live the healthiest life possible, this show does not substitute for an evaluation by a trained and licensed medical professional. It is highly recommended that any advice or recommendations on medications, treatments, nutrition, fitness, preventive services, etc. be implemented under the guidance and supervision of your primary medical provider or appropriate specialist. With that said, we hope that you enjoy and learn from our program, and please be sure to let us know how we can best serve you in future shows. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen of the listening audience. My name is Maurice Selby, MD. And this is Giorgio Malouf. And I'm Michael Holmes. And you're listening to the one and only Health in Harlem on WHCR 90.3 FM New York, the voice of Harlem and the Health in Harlem podcast featured pretty much wherever you get your podcast these days. Ladies and gentlemen, we are going to talk about your diets um, out there and not just any diet. I mean, we could definitely go into one of the fad diets out there, um, but specifically, we are going to talk about the 2021 Dietary Guidance to Improve Cardiovascular Health. This is a scientific statement from the American Heart Association. And the uh, reason why I thought it was so relevant to bring this up early in the year, because um, we just had our New Year's resolutions program. I think a couple of us actually had some diet-related um, nutritional re- related things that we wanted to work on this year. I'm, I'm trying to eat more fruits and vegetables, right? I said that, ladies and gentlemen. Five. I'm right now. I had a bad week last week. Okay, I'm working on it this week. Um, but yes, we wanted to get this information out there because I thought it was vitally important, um, especially for those individuals that are trying to do just that, um, sort of make some healthy changes in terms of what they're eating these days, right? As we kick this new year off. And uh, we want to stay on top of those resolutions and be successful in what we're doing. And I thought this could help. I thought this could definitely help. But before we do that, I just wanted to air it out as we do each and every week. And this is going to be reiterating something that we've been uh, talking about each week up to this point. Um, Once again, ladies and gentlemen, we are noticing around us this Omicron variant seems to be mild in the symptoms that it's producing in individuals. Um, lower or proportionally lower hospitalization and death rates when we look at other variants, right? However, I think there's some things that we need to kind of look at as maybe confounders on what's actually happening. And by that, I mean taking into account where we are, right, in this pandemic versus where we were when everything first started. We have a number of individuals really all around the world, but especially in this country that have been exposed and infected with uh, SARS-CoV-2. And with that said, might have some degree of protection, right, in terms of native antibodies that they formed from those infections. Another thing to consider is that we have pretty much widespread availability of vaccines. And we've had, could be better, but 
um, a significant uptake of these vaccines, right? Approaching 70% of the country vaccinated, um, at least when it comes to adults in this country. So I think taking that into consideration, right, that <laughs> Omicron, yes, seems to be quote unquote mild, um, but that is for individuals, um, especially we notice this is fact. There's no arguments here, ladies and gentlemen. Sorry, um, no wiggle room from, for what I'm about to say. But uh, for those that are vaccinated, uh, the, the the rule still stands. They have pretty good protection when it comes to hospitalization, death, other complications from COVID-19. The individuals that are ending up in the hospital, and I can tell you this from firsthand experience, are individuals that are not vaccinated or even boosted, right? You get additional protection from a booster shot. And with that said, um, we're going to reiterate that message. If you have not been vaccinated or boosted, you should do so, ladies and gentlemen, in order to protect yourself from this illness, because it's not mild for everyone. That's one thing is that this disease is still potentially dangerous um, for really anyone, but for, but especially for those that are not protected through vaccination. Uh, so that, that we're going to make that statement. And even if you had COVID before, because I've definitely heard that argument, which is, I think, valid to a degree, right? Well, I had it already. You know, I probably have some antibodies floating around. Good. That's true. One, they might not be, as we know from even vaccination, right? Um, they might not be as effective against the Omicron variant. We know that it does cause breakthrough infections. Two, I do have to add that this still stands as well and that through vaccination, right, on top of a prior infection and immunity that might have been acquired through that infection, you have an even better response to the vaccine. So you have even more protection having had uh, COVID already. And so I really think that just that just makes you more formidable, right, stronger in fending off, um, not only fending off a possible infection with Omicron, but even if you got infected, you would probably make it through pretty okay in terms of avoiding complications um, that would include hospitalization and even death, right? So that's that's the goal. And I think that's what we really need to maybe even if you want to say shift the goalpost, right, in terms of how we evaluate the effectiveness of these interventions, um, these vaccines is mainly, right, it is to keep people out of the hospital, to keep people from succumbing to this illness when it comes to serious disability and especially when we talk about death, right? Those are real things that are happening and there are still individuals out there having those complications from Omicron. So that's what I wanted to get out there. Um, yes, there's tons of other information out there, but I can tell you from experience and from what we know from the research, from the literature up to this point, that what we just said is is very true, right? That is accurate and true information. Um, and we are open to discussion on this program. So hit us up with any comments, questions, or concerns regarding that. But that's it. I aired it out. Anything you guys want to add? Moveon.com. See, they know I'm right, man. There's no arguments. Yeah, I'm you, joking. You covered all of <laughs> it. Like, I think so. But anyway, let's move on because, you know, one thing, too, that I've noticed is that as the vaccines were being developed, and especially once they were approved for emergency use and deployed, there was this big uproar. And I heard it from patients at the bedside, right, as I was working in the emergency department taking care of patients. I saw it on message boards, on social media, um, even in just listening to the mainstream media, watching the news, reading the papers, and that there were a number of individuals like, well, why don't we come up with natural ways to fight this? And um, especially one message that was being 
put out there was like, well, why don't we just talk about making people healthier, right? Why don't we talk about um, building up our immunity through healthy lifestyle habits? It was sort of a backlash to the medical community where I was like, I felt, all right, I was kind of personally offended because (laughs) if you listen to Health in Harlem each and every week, I think this is something that we talk about each and every week. Correct me if I'm wrong, guys. All right, good. See, and they call me out, ladies and gentlemen, right? Michael and Giorgio um, read the rest of the Health in Harlem fam- family. They call me out on my bull when it when it's out there, right? Um, so that's, I mean, that's something that I think we talk about each and every week. Um, it's something that I, in the past, even prior to the start of the pandemic, I think I've tried to discuss as much as I could in an emergency department setting, right? The importance of things that we can do in our lives each and every day, decisions that we make each and every day, each second, how that can impact our health, not only at the moment, but especially when we talk about long-term health and longevity, that is something that we talk about. (laughs) Maybe what I think it was, was that individuals felt kind of preached to, and also maybe those recommendations, um, or at least the way that we talked about it, individuals didn't feel like it was maybe tailored to them or their lifestyles or the way that, right, their circumstances even. And so that's why I felt it was really important to delve into these updated guidelines put out by the American Heart Association. Um, That's why I really thought that this was just important for us to just focus on these recommendations in and of themselves because they are quite different. Um, When we talk about the tone (laughs) with which they were delivered and even just the delivery itself, right, as far as this information and guidance when it comes to uh, our diets and cardiovascular health. You know, when we look at the tradition of the American Heart Association, we look at the tradition in terms of the medical community, right, and guidance that's put out. Um, it was always like coming from on high, I felt like, where we had these experts, you know, basically making these recommendations based on studies that could be quite limited in terms of um, the populations studied, right? Even when we talk about more specific things, socioeconomic factors um, of participants or how this information was gathered, they'd make these blanket things. And Michael and I actually, prior to the program, were talking about it where uh, Michael actually said like, yeah, it sounded kind of weird, right? The way that they would phrase um, or at least create this dichotomy of healthy diets and unhealthy diets, right? Yeah, like um, they, even- they they seem to have like classified it culturally. Like I know I know a big thing, um, even even that's still being taught in, in my med- medical school curriculum where it's like, oh, the healthiest diet is the Mediterranean diet, right? There are uh, aspects of the Mediterranean diet, you know, that are that are considered very healthy, but it, it seems it seems kind of there's a disconnect because not everyone has access to a Mediterranean diet. Like, you know, like there's, there's, there's cultural diets that people have been cooking with their whole lives. And it's kind of, it's a big ask to be like, you should just switch over to the Mediterranean um, after, you know, after you've cooked a certain way for 40 plus years, you know what I mean? So I remember thinking, I was like, what is a Mediterranean diet? The only thing I could think of was like, you know, olive oil and some balsamic vinegar, a couple of <laughs> olives, but like what exactly? I can't I mean, yeah, I feel like that. It's like heavily based on, I think, uh, fish or seafood. But I mean, if I if you ask me right now what a Mediterranean diet is, and I am not a person of, you know, any culinary training formally, nor with any 
deep background where we talk about the meditation. Well, actually, no, I did take Italian for like seven years. So I kind of got an idea of what that might entail. Mm, but like, yeah, what the heck is that? Like, what is a Mediterranean diet, right? And so, um, and it's not just that, but just sort of these specific recommendations um, that when we looked at it macroscopically, um, meaning, right, we're, we're trying to make these recommendations, blanket recommendations for entire populations, and especially here in the United States, where we know, right, we are a country of people that emigrated here, right? And they brought their cultures, their customs, their um, ethnic backgrounds, religions, all of that came with them. And so these blanket recommendations, these, if you will, these rules, quote unquote, um, when it comes to healthy eating, they just did not apply, right? Me as an African-American and the way that I was brought up in eating, which is even to a degree is a hodgepodge of other cultures and influences, especially having grown up in New York City, um, right? I eat a lot of different things. <laughs> so making these recommendations and, and especially when we talk about the way, like my palate personally, um, but even we talk about the cultural backgrounds of individuals and the things that people prefer or do not prefer. That's why I think when we talk about a healthy heart diet or eating healthily when it comes to cardiovascular health, we see a lot of people fall off the wagon. I don't know why I use that term, but um, I'm just saying that it's hard to keep up with when we say, hey, just eat this and not that. Um, but one thing that I really like about these recommendations as we begin to delve into them is that they take into account individuals' backgrounds, right? And not to give specific recommendations to any one group, but saying that rather than focusing on eat this, not that, they really encouraged having a balance in your diet, right? Um, and really, they frame that balance around 10 sort of uh, tips and strategies uh, that if you follow these things, then regardless of how you eat, right, if you have these 10 characteristics in your diet, you will be therefore eating in a way that is good for your cardiovascular health going forward. A couple other things about these guidelines that I thought was really impressive is that they actually, at the outset, talk about the importance of healthy eating, right, from the earlier ages too. Um, actually, they even go into uh, the fact that cardiovascular disease risk, right, of infants, it starts in the womb, ladies and gentlemen. So, Everything from the mother, right, and, and the food that mom consumes that can not only impact the mother's cardiovascular health um, in that period, uh, but also, right, postnatally after they have delivered their child, um, it can definitely impact the eating habits of their child um, as well. So earlier, right, early in life stages, this is something I did not know that there is evidence of when we talk about cardiovascular disease, especially coronary artery disease. Um, there's evidence of that in children, right? Postmortem examinations or um, examinations of uh, children that have passed for very various reasons, unfortunately. There's evidence of heart disease developing from the youngest of ages, right? And so that this is really um, them sort of saying that, hey, this is something that we need to deal with across the lifespan, right? Um, healthy habits that can be ingrained in our children from an early age. Um, so that we can go forward and have the best outcomes uh, when we talk about our cardiovascular health. So 
um, some major changes in that regard and how uh, this is targeting individuals and how we really go about uh, making these recommendations so that they can benefit everybody, regardless of your background, right? Even when it comes to your age, these are guidelines that we can, I think we can all follow. You know, Mo, I think that the the previous model is rudimentary, but it served its purpose at the time. And I think it was more of an imp- oversimplification. I do like these these updated guidelines a lot more. I think that it, instead of saying which group happened to be practicing habits that we want to replicate, it's more of saying this is the essence of what all good diets for cardiovascular health are going to uh, entail. And so I really like mm-hmm. this approach a lot more. Michael, do you want to go through w- one of the first evidence-based dietary guidances that are shown to promote cardiovascular health? Yeah, of course. So the first one they have listed, is number one, adjust energy intake and expenditure to achieve and maintain healthy body weight. And so essentially energy intake expenditure Um, We know our food has calories, and calories is essentially energy. Um, When they say adjust energy intake and expenditure, the intake is your caloric intake, and your expenditure is, it's a combination of um, what people call your your basal metabolic rate, which is how much energy you burn just breathing and living your life and, you know, doing your regular routine. Um, and then of course there's, you know, exercise, which then is, uh, excess, uh, expenditure of energy. And so this guideline is essentially just saying to be conscious of your balance of your caloric intake and your expenditure. And there's a whole bunch of apps and, and calculations out there to, um, calculate your basal metabolic rate to kind of get a general sense of it. I feel or, like it is, estimated. it is kind of, or yeah, or estimated because everyone's different uh, metabolically. I do I do think it's 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 a little rough because uh, keeping an eye on on your basal metabolic rate and your intake. I mean, in some people, it's shown uh, high rates of like body dysmorphia. Like we don't want to be too on top of how much you're intaking and how much you're you know burning up. Um, but it, mm-hmm. as a general guideline, it is important to know um, to keep that healthy balance and keep a healthy body rate, which is essentially what this first point is bringing up. And so so this is just one of the many balances that our body is going to be uh, trying to enforce through homeostasis. So we're going to have energy balance uh, if if everything is going well. And that, that would mean that your energy in and your energy out would be balanced together and you would be maintaining your weight. Or if you're actively trying to lose weight, you would have a greater energy out than it than a in and therefore you would have a negative energy balance and you'd be able to slowly lose weight and if you lose 3500 calories on average that would be a pound that you would lose and it's pretty healthy to lose about a pound to two pounds every two weeks essentially uh, one of the ways that this point is trying to um, make a, a difference than before is saying that you can have many different types of of healthy diets, uh, as long as calorically you're balanced between the in and out. And that also is going to include the, uh, exercise that you should be having every week. And the level of activity that is suggested by the American Heart Association is 150 minutes a week of moderate exercise. 
Now that is like a, a minimum. Your bodies will definitely thank you for being even more active, but essentially this is where your diet and your exercise would kind of uh, make it so that you have a certain energy out that would be healthy. And then you would be able to, to supply your body with enough calories to maintain that level of activity. And that would be that, that healthy guideline that we're looking for. And ladies and gentlemen, if you don't like the numbers, Maurice Selby, believe it or not, I don't like the numbers, right? And focusing on getting that activity, right? So when we talk about how we're eating, um, as my colleagues just said, right, not only focusing on what comes in, because we've seen that with prior models where they focused on just caloric intake while not talking about this expenditure of energy, right? Getting that energy out. Um, and that's why it's so vitally important to have that physical activity component. The beautiful thing, right? And this is why these recommendations, both on the nutrition end, but even as we have talked about re on recent shows, a big change that we see here is that there's more flexibility, right? Before, if we looked at past guidelines, not only from the American Heart Association, but from other organizations, um, there was always a mention of, right, getting this aerobic activity. We had to be out running or cycling or um, swimming. Whereas now we know that going for a nice brisk walk, right, with a loved one, um, that qualifies as physical activity. Taking the stairs on your way up to your office floor at work as opposed to taking an elevator, that is an expenditure of energy, right? You are getting some physical activity uh, from that. Taking your children out to play in a park, walking around with them, riding a bike with them. There are so many ways in which we can hit that 150 minutes of moderate um, right, uh, to vigorous physical activity each week. And there are tangible benefits to be gained down the line, both in the near term, right? When we talk about weight management, I know that's a big issue for a lot of people. And that's part of some New Year's resolutions, as we had discussed, right, in the previous week. And so really getting this balance of energy, one thing that is crucial to this in addition to our intake and looking at how many uh, calories, again, not so much counting, but getting a rough idea as to what we're bringing in and what we need to do to um, offload that energy. It's a basic guideline that gives us right a, a, a rough template on how we can get that energy balance to achieve a healthy body weight and therefore reap those cardiovascular benefits. And not only that, if, if you do happen to go towards a, cal a caloric restriction, you have a whole bunch of other added benefits that um, your body would be thanking you for again. Uh, so it wouldn't just be limited to your cardiovascular system, but it would help with your neural function. And so uh, there, there are a lot of benefits to caloric restriction, um, as well as maintaining a certain energy balance that does include physical activity on a regular basis. And if we were going to break that up into a daily basis, uh, we'd be looking at a little bit over 21 minutes a day. If you were to uh, spread it out evenly across the week, or if you want to just do work days, you could say that that's half an hour every day, uh, work day, and you could get it over with. But I, we, we again, don't want to emphasize just the quantity of the calories, but also the quality is very important. And the rest of the uh, nutritional facts about what you're putting into your body. And so the next point that we want to get to is eating plenty of fruits and vegetables. And this might come as a, a bit of a surprise because if you've eaten fruits, you're like, oh man, but this is sweet. It's almost fun to eat this. 
And then for vegetables, I guess as we get older, we we, we become more and more appreciative of those of those salads and um, all the different vegetable snacks that we could be having. You know, you kind of realize how much tastier they are. You know, they're natural and and it feels good to eat them. You get fiber, you get iron, you get vitamins, minerals. Uh, it's awesome. And there is a difference between consuming fruits and let's say drinking a soda, which has a lot of sugar that's been added to it or any other kind of drink like that that's most likely bottled that's not water. Chances are it has a pretty large quantity of added sugars. So uh, this is actually one of the other guideline points. Uh, Make sure that you minimize as much as possible the intake of beverages and foods with added sugars. Now, fruits are going to have simple sugars uh, for the most part uh, that are not added, and which is why it's okay to have a certain balanced level of fruits and vegetables. Again, that does not mean that you should only eat the the sweetest grapes and say that you're you're this is what my dad does. That's why I'm saying it. He'll be like, he'll eat healthy all day and then he'll he'll take out some grapes and, and splurge. Start, yeah, start popping them and he's diabetic. So <laughs> I do it too. So so yeah, it's good, man. You know, and a little bit of it is great. It's much better than taking out a gushers or something like that. But you know, we 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 do have to maintain that balance. That's the the main key to this all. And then for vegetables, like we were saying, there's a, a lot of dietary fiber that you would be getting from vegetables as well as vitamins and minerals. You should also note that how you eat the the fruits and vegetables will therefore affect how beneficial they are to you. So generally speaking, uh, the rawer it is, the better it is for you. And you should eat the whole fruit if you're going to be uh, eating fruits, because if you're going to go for the juice alone, usually that dietary fiber is going to get removed in the process of juicing. And so you're not going to reach a, a level of satiety or you know satisfaction there. So you might continue to consume it to a point where it's unbalanced, you know, where you're splurging on what normally would have taken you half an hour to peel and get through all those fruits and vegetables naturally. You're getting the sugars from all of those fruits and one fruit juice that you're drinking. You know, that's where we start to tip the scale in the other side. So while it's great to, to eat plenty of fruits and vegetables, uh, especially the deeply colored fruits and vegetables, um, because those tend to be more nutrient dense than the lighter color ones, we do have to be careful about how we do this. And uh, generally speaking, go a little crazy, you know, get get a, a wide variety, get become diverse with your fruits and vegetables and your taste buds will say thank you. You'll become a cultured eater. <laughs> and apparently your heart is going to say thank you as well <laughs> uh, because different fruits and vegetables have different levels of uh, key nutrients and phytochemicals, which means that you should try and get different kinds and, in order to, to maximize on all the benefits that you could get there. I think mixing it up is huge. And remember, um, just another key thing that Giorgio said is focusing on getting right the whole fruit, the whole vegetables, um, the closer it is to having been removed right from the ground and not stripped of its nutrients or processed in any way, the better. And really, it's about getting your money's worth right from that, because um, taking that fiber out, um, taking out all of those micronutrients that come with it, um, it really, when we talk about getting the maximum impact, 
right, nutritionally from these foods, um, the closer it is to the source, right, to the way that it came out of the ground, the way that it came off the tree and so on, um, the better it is for you, ladies and gentlemen. And also just beware, as, as Giorgio said, of that added salt and sugar, especially when we talk about canned um, and frozen fruits and vegetables, um, those preparations of these fruits and vegetables um, can be harmful. So if, if you're going to get frozen fruits or vegetables, those are fair game, right? Um, just be aware of that salt and sugar. And the same thing with canned fruits and vegetables, um, there can be added salt and sugar in those. Um, so be aware of that, but definitely the way to go. I'm going to take number three uh, because this deals with whole grains, right? Over foods with processed grains. Basically, you want to take in whole grains, ladies and gentlemen, versus the processed foods, right? Processed grains that can actually be detrimental to our health. So when we talk about whole grains, we're talking about the germ, the endosperm, and the bran. Basically, this is essentially like we talked about with the fruits and vegetables, where this is how we want our grains, right? As they're essentially coming out of the ground. Um, we actually see tangible health benefits when it comes to pre the prevention of cardiovascular disease. Uh, we also see benefits in our gastrointestinal system, ladies and gentlemen, through facilitated, I, was, <laughs> I don't want to say facilitated, but um, I can testify to better bowel movements. I know I'm gross. I'm an emergency doc. And uh, yeah, I'm not uncomfortable talking about these bodily functions. Uh, but yeah, man, you eat some good. Uh, that's one thing I deal with patients, right? That come in constipated and bloating and having digestive issues. And I'm like, well, you know, tell me, what do you eat? And a lot of times those diets are low on these whole grains, right? And when we talk about whole grains, I'm not talking about the, uh, you know, oatmeal that is packaged and processed, including all of these uh, added sugars and sweeteners and things. I'm talking about, we want those nice whole oats, right? That are, um, you know, pretty much healthy in terms of they have not been processed as much. Um, they can be rolled. They can be steel cut. Uh, but we want those nice whole oats, those whole grains, um, as we said, com com uh, containing those components, the germ, the endosperm, and the bran. It's just really, really important that we add that to our diets because we can definitely reap, as we said, those uh, tangible health benefits. You know, and I, I do want to go back to one thing about splurging and and also like exercise, because I know at least on my health fitness journey over the past few months, uh, trying to get back into it after, you know, quarantine weight hit and all that. There's a certain feeling, you know, when you go after the gym, you're like, oh, I just worked out. You know, I just worked out for all those calories. And you're like, mm, let me treat myself, you know? And then you get Michael, I, I did this like <laughs> literally before this, like, That's... like right before this show, uh -huh. before I hopped on. Yeah. I was so hungry after the gym. I was like, no, no, no I need a steak. Yeah. Uh, there's nothing else that will do it for me. There were plenty of vegetables and mm -hmm. fish and I've been eating so well this whole week. But uh -huh. today I was like steak and fries. Yeah. And, you know, it was the biggest <laughs> hypocritical moment before I get on this show. But I totally get what you're saying. There, there are days. Where you just have to, you know, yeah. practice balance. It's, You're human. It, yeah, it's it's really bad because like you, there was there was a time where I would do it like consistently. Like I would I would have a really good workout. Be like, wow, I did so much, and then I have like the most unhealthy thing imaginable afterwards. And I'm like, you know, I deserve <laughs> it. You know, 
And then, but then when you really think about it, you know, my, my 30 minute run or my, my hour workout in the gym is only so many calories. And then that meal that I just ate is like double that. So I basically made negative progress in that regard. And so, you know, but remember balance, balance, and you're going to have some off days, right? There's going to be days where for whatever reason, maybe you're uh, busy and, and you couldn't prepare your, your, uh, meals. And so maybe you needed to right eat fast food every once in a while just to survive. Like those things are going to happen. But yeah. when we talk about that net energy balance, right, not only at the end of a day, but when we spread that over the course of a week or a month, mm-hmm. right, getting that net negative balance, um, essentially meaning, right, burning more calories than we are taking in, then we can start to see those benefits um, as far as weight management is concerned, right? Maintaining that healthy body weight. Um, and also when we talk about the cardiovascular benefits of maintaining a healthy body weight. So that's the thing. And that's where these guidelines shine, I think, and that they give us that wiggle room in saying, hey, right, strict eating and and adhering to these uh, strict diets per se, it, that's why people are not successful in them because of the things that are happening in our lives, um, the changes from day to day, the parties and social occasions, right, in which we are going to eat uh, things that are more calorically dense um, or that are higher in fat content or sweeteners. Um, but if we're not eating like that every day and we are following, uh, for the most part, these guidelines that we have before us each and every day, we will more than likely have a healthier diet. Um, and so I, I think that's where the focus is, right? So you didn't mess up. Don't be too hard on yourself. Um, actually, that was one of our high points, I think, of our conversation last week. And I said, we move on, you know? I had a beef patty before this. Speaking so. of moving on. <laughs> a, ju- a nice, tasty beef patty. It was great. Man, did we did we all just, like, kind of sabotage ourselves, like, right before hopping on this? <laughs> it happens. It happens. Yeah, yeah this, is, this is our off day, is what I'm going to say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As long as you don't have an off day too often, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we're human. You're working out more than you're you're taking off. These guidelines acknowledge that we're human. Exactly, exactly, and and it's just more of the mindset of where you should try and you know guide yourself to. There are guidelines; they're not laws. So this is just something that you want to try to adhere to, regardless of if you're eating it at home or if you're consuming food that's being prepared for you. Now, uh, the next thing that I want to talk about is, since I was talking about the steak, um, let's talk about some healthy protein sources. So, yes, a lean cut of steak uh, or meat or poultry is going to be better than processed meats. But at the same time, you have other healthy protein sources, such as plant-based proteins like legumes and, and nuts, uh, as well as fish and seafood, which have other vitamins in them, like omega-3 uh, oils that are going to be uh, super important for your neurofunction. Also, you have low-fat or fat-free uh, dairy products that also are considered healthy protein sources. So while you can consume it through lean cuts of meat and poultry, um, you know this is another choice that's probably even healthier because every vegetarian I've ever met is like, 65 and looks 30 like i've never met a vegetarian who doesn't look at least 20 years younger so there has to be something there that being said 
uh, whenever you are looking at plant-based uh, alternatives, be a little bit wary of uh, plant-based meat alternatives because while you, you will have um, a, a reduction in the carbon footprint by using plant-based proteins and you will be avoiding processing some of those harder proteins to, to process that would be an animal, uh, animal protein, you also... Uh, need to be careful about plant-based meat alternatives because a lot of them are actually ultra-processed and they are shock full of added sugars, saturated fats, salt stabilizers, and preservatives. And while the nutrient profile of these foods are evolving, there is very little evidence on the short and long-term effects of this plant-based uh, uh, meat alternative on our health, especially our cardiovascular health. So we just need to be a little bit wary about those things. You know, we want to give you the, the most up-to-date information based on the evidence. And the evidence just isn't there yet. And we do think that it'll probably improve. You know, it's a very uh, new technology. But at the same time, we want you to make the, the best choices possible when choosing your healthy protein sources. While we're on that, we also got our, our fat sources, right? So we, we need to talk about our uh, oils. And if you use liquid plant oils like canola, soybean, uh, safflower, mm -hmm. and sunflower oils, rather than tropical oils, such as coconut palm and palm kernel oils, that's actually better for your heart health. Mo, do you actually know the logic behind that? Well, it's basically when we, we look at the intake of what we call unsaturated fats, um, when we look at the intake of things called saturated fats, saturated fats, and especially when we talk about trans fatty, fatty acid, right? Uh, these things can be very, very harmful to our health. Um, so when we talk about unsaturated fats, um, they can actually reduce our low density lipoproteins or LDL cholesterol. This is the bad form of cholesterol, and that can also increase your cardiovascular disease risk. And so what we do see is that in these liquid plant oils, they would have a higher level of unsaturated fats, right, which can reduce that um, LDL cholesterol and therefore reduce your cardiovascular disease risk or the risk of heart disease. When we look at saturated fats, these largely come from animal fat sources, right? So that butter and lard loaded with uh, saturated fats. Um, we can also see them in tropical oils. And then we also talk about things like partially um, hydrogenated fats, right? Those can be detrimental as well and also raise those LDL cholesterol levels. Um, and so that's why this is, becomes important and that really when we talk about the risk of cardiovascular disease and the links that we see when it comes to increased cholesterol, um, especially the bad form of cholesterol, LDL cholesterol, um, this is really the best way to go in terms of reducing that um, when it comes to our cooking oils. And so that's that's one thing uh, that we really need to, I think, focus on um, as we go forward. And, and I can tell you, I mean, we use butter in my household, um, but this is something that's not an everyday thing, right? Primarily, we're cooking with vegetable oils um, that we can use for the, the vast majority of cooking that we do in my household. 
right? And so if I would say that from a cultural standpoint or even a family standpoint, when we're making our weekend breakfast, which I'm a, I'm the breakfast expert in the house actually. So um, I'm the man throwing down, you know, the egg game and making my grits and bacon and stuff on Saturday or Sunday. Um, so yeah, I'm using butter right during that time. But majority, when we talk about the majority of cooking that's done in our household, we are using uh, these sources of plant oils, right? So things like avocado oil, olive oil, there are so many out there. Um, I know there for a minute we were using things like safflower oil or even sunflower oil. It's actually very good. Um, these are just so good and, and flavorful, but can also right reap those benefits in the reduction of cardiovascular disease. So that that brings us to our next guideline, mm-hmm. which is that when you are preparing that delicious breakfast that Mo, you haven't shared with any of us. No, nope. uh, this is the first I've ever heard of it in five years that you choose to prepare that food with little or no salt because salt is going to uh, have an additive effect on your body, raising your blood pressure and uh, over time, too much salt consumption, which it's kind of like a gateway. You just keep putting more and more salt. I've never met anyone who's like, you know, I used to use salt and now I don't. It's like I feel like it just increases over time, the salt usage, because you get like a tolerance to it. And then food just doesn't taste the same anymore. And there you go. You you know, you you have hypertension and uh, your salt intake is partly to blame for that. Please make sure that you prepare your food with little or no salt because over time, that higher blood pressure is going to damage your heart, making it exert itself more than it needs to. And eventually that'll lead to hypertrophy or increased muscle mass of your heart. And it's kind of like having Arnold Schwarzenegger for your your uh, for your heart, like while while, you know, having a lot of muscle sounds good. Think about the lack of flexibility that your heart is going to have. And since your heart is a pump, it needs to have that full recoil and full pump to be able to eject as much blood as possible. And so it actually becomes something that um, would affect cardiac function negatively if you have prolonged periods of extra exertion or hyperexertion of the heart, which is something that can start in part because of your salt intake. So that's the reason for that one. That is the major, major concern, ladies and gentlemen. As we've always talked about on this program, high blood pressure or hypertension being a major risk factor in the development of cardiovascular disease. Um, And especially as Giorgio was saying, right, um, not only heart disease uh, from the standpoint of things like heart failure, um, but also when we talk about things like heart attacks or myocardial infarction, even when we talk about brain attacks, right, stroke. Um, another major risk factor being elevated blood pressure, kidney disease also um, being, you know, the kidneys being very sensitive to elevated blood pressure. Um, so this is just one of those things. Reduction of our intake of sodium or salt um, can have very, very, very important reductions, right, in your your risk of developing cardiovascular disease. And when we talk about uh, things such as certain populations, right, um, individuals af- of African descent, middle-aged and older-aged individuals, um, even individuals that have diagnosed high blood pressure, right? Reducing our sodium intake 
um, can have drastic improvements on our health outcomes going forward. And just one thing to keep in mind when we talk about the leading sources of sodium, right, in the United States, we're talking about processed foods, which, you know, that was something that we mentioned before that Giorgio brought up, right, as far as these ultra processed plant-based meat alternatives, right, something to think about. Um, And really, I think that's just a segue into uh, feature number six of these guidelines put out by the American Heart Association, because they say that, right, choose minimally, minimally processed foods instead of um, ultra processed foods. And that is one of the main reasons for that. Um, As we said, that salt content being very high. We also mentioned that that sugar content being super high, right, in those foods, those ultra processed foods. And so really, that's where that guidance is coming from. That's really what we need to keep in the back of our minds, regardless of where you're from, right? This is why this is so powerful, these new guidelines, because this is something that regardless of your background, regardless of your ethnicity, your origins, um, this can, is something that can be adhered to um, when we stick to that minimally processed food versus the ultra processed. And so moving on.com, this is where the drinks come in uh, because <laughs> we can't talk about a healthy diet, right? We can't talk about healthy eating and nutrition without talking about what we consume as far as the intake of beverages. And uh, we're going to talk about alcoholic versus non-alcoholic. So basically, we've talked about this before, ladies and gentlemen, and they make it very, very simple in these guidelines. Feature number nine, if you do not drink alcohol, don't start. I love the way that they (laughs) phrase that. It can't get any simpler. Like, yo, if you don't drink, don't start. Like, that's period. Yeah. And if you do, we want to limit that intake. We've talked about this on this program before, ladies and gentlemen. Actually, the World Health Organization just weighed in not too long ago on their guidance on alcohol intake. I remember them saying, right, there was the big question, how much, what is the upper limit of intake, right, when we talk about alcohol and uh, its possible risk on our health? And they made a blanket recommendation saying that, you know what, there's no safe level of alcohol intake, um, which I was very, I think a lot of people were very shocked at um, and that they just came out and said like, you know what, it's just not healthy, period. Don't put it in your body. Um, They did not give any limits. Um, And they gave a little wiggle room just saying, you know, sort of the breakdown for women and men um, as far as what can be considered a safe intake. But really, in the end, their recommendation was like, look, just don't drink. Try to abstain as much as possible. Yeah. So, you know, regarding the whole alcohol consumption and putting that statement out that, you know, just don't put alcohol in your body. I did want to, how much do you know about the the French paradox? Have you ever heard of it? No, I have not. Educate me. So it's the idea that the French have lower risks of cardiovascular diseases, despite consuming diet that consists of, of a lot of fats. And so I know researchers have looked into it and the main difference in their diet that that differs from the other countries they're comparing them to is that they drink a lot of wine. And I've heard before in many, many papers, many lectures that possibly a glass of wine can have these antioxidant, anti-inflammatory properties, um, you know, if consumed daily. And these people that, you know, it's part of their diet, it's part of what they do on the daily, they don't seem to have any cardiovascular issues. Uh, Well, not any, but like, you know, not anything prominent based off of their wine consumption. 
I think there's uh and you know that's something that is that has been studied to tell you Michael frankly as as a person is not an expert in, in nutrition definitely not an al- expert when it comes to um alcohol intake or French culture uh, sure. one thing is that there are multiple variables that or multiple factors that might account for this discrepancy right and part of it sure. is culture as well not only in their intake of alcohol, which although they, it is something that, right, when we talk about European culture and the relation to wine, for instance, having that right with probably almost every meal from what I understand, or more frequently paired with meals, um, it is typically taken in, right, in more moderation than what we might see here in the United States. Also, when we talk about things such as, right, the initial feature in these guidelines, right, intake, right, that intake versus Um, expenditure of calories. Well, one thing that is known is that when we talk about portions here in the United States versus other countries around the world, including uh, in Europe, their portion sizes um, are typically smaller, right? So they're taking in less calories. um, And really all of these various factors um, factor into what is possibly a healthier diet or at least, right, more features of these very guidelines that we are reviewing, more features of these guidelines being in uh, some European style diets and even other diets around the world, right? When we talk about diets in Southeast Asia and we look at the prevalence of things like obesity, hypertension and other diseases or risk factors for cardiovascular disease, right? We see them at lower rates, but they eat very differently, right? And so these guidelines... One of the, I think the special things about them is that they kind of borrow from healthy elements of diets all around the world. (laughs) You see, Um, that's why I think this is something that many individuals, if we adhere to them or try our best to adhere to some of these guidelines, I think we can actually come out better from a nutritional standpoint when it comes to reduction of cardiovascular disease. So I'm going to take feature number seven, actually, because um, just as we said, right, minimizing that alcohol intake. Uh, Feature number seven says minimize intake of beverages and foods with added sugars. We kind of went through this, but really can't stress the importance of it enough because there can be these hidden calories, especially when we talk about beverages, the beverages that we intake each and every day, juices, especially fruit juices, um, while they can be, um, they can be healthy, right? Uh, They can be a, a part of a healthy diet, but we have to be mindful of the sugar amounts in those beverages. Uh, we also need to be mindful of the amount that we take in, Um, especially when we talk about drinking a juice, uh, a fruit juice versus eating the whole fruit, right? All of that dietary fiber that is taken out, um, one, we are left with primarily sugar that we're drinking from that fruit drink, um, but also that dietary fiber that we would have consumed, right? We feel less satiated and therefore we want to drink more, right? It's easy to drink a couple of glasses of uh, grape juice, um, and with that grape juice, you might be taking in at any one time, depending on the amount that you might consume at any time or with each serving, uh, they could be hundreds of calories in that, right? A couple of hundred calories that you're consuming with a glass of a fruit juice um, versus eating the whole fruit where you're consuming, you know, maybe 60 calories or half that, maybe even smaller if it's something like um, a grape, right? An individual grape. So uh, just being mindful of that, I think it can really get us very far in terms of limiting that intake of sugars. 
Yeah, um, especially when I know many people have their favorite glass that they use for juice. You know, it's like the best glass. It holds the cold the best and all that. But then they fill it up and they think, oh, this is this is just a glass of juice. But that that glass can be a pretty large glass. And, you know, it ends up being two, three servings of the juice that you thought was maybe just one. So one serving. And that's the thing. <laughs> right. Nutrition facts. I'm glad you brought exactly. that up, Michael, because I think the way that these things are marketed, right? Um, when we look at, and I'm not going to put any brand out there because <laughs> we don't want to risk our skins out there, right? With a bunch of lawsuits and stuff, because people will be quite mad at us if we mention uh, anything like that. But just look at how these things are marketed. Very attractive logos. Um, they might even throw a picture of the fruit on there for you. And it looks nice and fresh and healthy. Uh, but as Michael said, right, uh, there can be a number of added sugars to those products. Also, there can be multiple servings in that one bottle or can or whatever vessel that it is delivered to you in or given to you in, right? There can be multiple servings in there. So as opposed to drinking 120 calories, if there were two servings in there, two eight ounce servings in a 16 ounce drink, you might be consuming 240 or more calories in that one serving. And as we said, going back to that first feature right? That energy balance is a big thing. So if we're drinking two or three juices a day, um, you know what? Maurice might have to go and run five miles <laughs> instead of two and a half because <laughs> yeah. um, I drank two servings of that stuff. Just giving you an example, ladies and gentlemen, but we have to be mindful of that. And one other tip that I will add based on the, one of the other features uh, when we talked about the intake of whole grains, right? One thing that is very important is in looking at these nutrition facts, if you read the ingredients label, the order in which ingredients are listed, right, the higher they are in proportion within that particular product that you are consuming. Um, and so what you want to see, right, is whole grains need to be among the first ingredients, right, for any uh, thing that you will be consuming that has um, any sort of grain in it. You want to see whole grain, right? That term whole grain somewhere within the first few ingredients in that label to know that it is in a high proportion in that particular food. According to the American Heart Association, foods are considered whole grains if they have greater than 51% or more of whole grains in that particular food, right? Um, that's just something to look out for, being mindful of nutrition facts, um, and how to read these nutrition labels. And actually, I'm going to incorporate that in our show notes, um, a, a guide or a reference um, that you can all use to understand how to interpret these labels. So important. Thank you, Michael, for bringing that up, man. Of Thank course, you. of course. Ladies and gentlemen, we are moving on to feature 10. <laughs> I love the way they phrase this one, too. And basically, they're saying adhering to this guidance, right? Um, as much as you can. So all the other features that we went through, features one through nine, this food-based dietary guidance, right, applies to all foods, beverages, doesn't matter where they're prepared, where they're procured, right, how we got them or how they're consumed, right? Um, really taking this all into account no matter where we're eating, whether we're cooking it in our homes, um, when we are going out and shopping, right, for the food that we are going to bring and prepare at home or that we are going to consume, throughout our day and weeks, uh, and also even food that is prepared, let's say, in a restaurant or food that we get mm -hmm. um, off of a, a newsstand, uh, being mindful of all of these features, right, as we make these day-to-day -day decisions, actually minute-to-minute -minute decisions, right, that is going to 
impact our cardiovascular health. And yeah, by and I, adhering to these guidelines, we can have a, a more positive impact on our health. I'm just saying this one, this one's a rough one. Um, but you know, so I, I went on a, a vacation fairly recently and this was actually something that was going through my head when I was there. Cause it's like, on one hand, you're like, Oh, I'm on vacation. Let me, let me, you know, let me splurge. Let me relax. What a I want. <laughs> yeah. Eat what you want. But you know, I did something surprising. I was actually very health conscious about my meals during this vacation it felt good. I'm going to be honest. Like I was waking up at 7 a.m. to, you know, explore and all that. Like it felt better when I was when I was following this uh, this little vacation diet that I was on. I'm not saying I'm not saying you can do that. I'm saying I mean, if you're on vacation. You're on vacation. You know what I'm saying? But in my experience, it, it really did feel good. Yeah, I think there's ways too, right. There are ways in which we can be on your vacation um, and you can eat fun right, and have fun and enjoy your vacation while also yeah, exactly. being mindful of impacts to your health or what you're putting yeah. in your body. I, like, and, I still had my creme brulee, but you know, I was, you know, in moderation. <laughs> but a creme brulee prepared with fresh ingredients, right? And, and not saying. added sugars, no high fructose corn syrup being thrown in your fruit juice. Um, <laughs> that's something that we can do each and every day, right? There's mm-hmm. making sure that we don't have those added sugars, even if you're going to have a cocktail, right? One, in moderation, as we said, and as much as you can, right? Anything that they're putting in there, added sugars and stuff. No, we don't want that. We don't need that. Um, Mm -hmm. Maybe we can have fruit that is put in there, but fresh fruit juice, right? Maybe freshly squeezed fruit juice. Might pay a bit of a premium for that, but there are ways in which we can enjoy ourselves and still eat healthily. Uh, The last thing, ladies and gentlemen, that I I was really um, also impressed with with these guidelines was that they took into account some of the challenges that we have here in our society regarding equity and justice, um, because they do actually talk about the challenges in reality, right, that we deal with, um, and especially when we talk about urban centers like Harlem, other urban centers around the country, um, and that there are challenges when we talk about the access to fresh fruits and vegetables. There are challenges when we talk about the options as far as whole grains being on shelves. There are challenges when, it, when we talk about the cost of these food items, right? And um, as bad as we want to incorporate them into um, our diets, it can be challenging uh, when we talk about these other factors, right? Socioeconomic factors, just availability, structural issues within some communities. And so they do mention that and they do uh, put out there the recommendation that not only um, understanding these challenges at the individual level, at the community level, but even when it taught, we talk about taking action to address these issues um, at the legislative level and in larger levels in society. So it's just profound that they mentioned that because, right, look at everything that's going on around us, right? All of the political stuff and I mean, reading the papers every day, man, I'm getting ready for election season now. Just as these people out there, these pundits are talking about the, well, guess what? In light of these recommendations on dietary guidance from the AHA, right, we have to be mindful going forward as we go to the ballot box. The politicians out there that are talking about increasing the availability of fresh fruits and vegetables in our neighborhoods, increasing the number of shopping centers, or at least Maybe, I don't know, if you have a person that wants to sell fresh fruits and vegetables in their community or have a store or open a business that can provide these and bring these items in, maybe it comes to uh, supporting local farmers, right? Individuals that are talking about getting fresh produce in our communities, these are the people that I want to get behind when we talk about 
elections, right? And and putting our our vote where our mouth is. Um, I would say literally putting our vote where our mouth is because these are ways in which we can advocate for change in our communities to make sure that we have the ability to follow this guidance, right? Based on what we have available to ourselves in our community. So just a shout out to the AHA. I, I really do want to give them credit for these latest dietary guidance that has been put out. And so with that said, ladies and gentlemen, um, thank you all for tuning in. We did incorporate these articles in our show notes so you can review it for yourself, right? And take that home with you as we go forward. Also, we have some other links in there just to help break down this information um, so that you can actually use this in your day-to-day life going forward so we can improve um, our well-being and health outcomes. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, thank you all for tuning into Health in Harlem. As we always thank you each and every week, we also want to thank our colleagues and family at WHCR. Um, Shout out to Tina Dixon, the production manager. Shout out to Angela Harden for running the show, the general manager at WHCR. Also want to shout out my man, Michael Holmes, and thank him, uh, one of our co-hosts and uh, associate producers on the program. Shout out to Reed. Thank you for all you do. No doubt. Also shout out to Reed, one of our post-production editors of the program and also another producer. I want to shout out Giorgio, one of the lead producers, and Anastasia. Uh, also want to shout out uh, Mia. Who else are we missing, man? We have such a big team. Ben, just everybody, and the extraordinary work that you all are doing and for your dedication to the Harlem community, basically, and beyond. Ladies and gentlemen, as always, this show is dedicated to the memory of Miss Gloria Thomas. Harlem, take care of yourself.